This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I think a good title for Daniel 1 is Daniel's Purpose of Heart, not to defile himself with the king's meat and drink. Daniel's Purpose of Heart, not to defile himself with the king's meat and drink. The opening chapter is a fairly short chapter of 21 verses. I think it'd be good to read that together. If you average out all of the 1189 chapters in the Bible, they average between 27 and 28 verses a chapter. So this is a relatively short chapter as Bible chapters go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, approximately 605 BC, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, or Babylon, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Matthew Henry pungently observes, see the righteousness of God. His people had brought the images of other gods into his temple and now he suffers the vessels of the temple to be carried into the treasuries of those other gods. We abuse our privileges and we can lose them. I was thinking that One of the greatest privileges America has is freedom of worship. I think of the patriot blood that has been shed so we can have this priceless heritage. So much of the history of the world and so much of the history of Christendom is state churches and uh, persecution when you try to worship according to the dictates of your own conscience. And for us to be able to have this dearly bought precious privilege, freedom of worship, is a great privilege. But if we're not careful what we don't use, we lose. And uh, here you have this respectable person working on this nice house as you drive by on Sunday morning to come to church, and he doesn't have the slightest thought about coming to church. It's not important to him. But uh, this is a great privilege, and uh, we don't want to ever lose it. Uh, We want to honor it. Uh, There's some real concerns about declining church attendance in America today, and um, it's uh, even in Baptist churches. And uh, so we we want to use our privileges and pray that God will continue to give them to us. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. They wanted to pick some choice men uh, among the captives of Judah and bring them to Babylon and train them for um, official service and to be liaisons between the Babylonians and the Jewish people. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, 
that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. There'll be a three-year training period. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. He gave him Babylonian names that honored Babylonian gods because this was part of a brainwashing process to try to Babylonianize them and take away their Hebrew heritage. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat or with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had providentially brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. Why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. I want to work with you, but my life could be in danger. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink, grains and vegetables, but not the king's meat. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Malzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, the king had said he should bring them in. Then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them. And among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. Bible says in Proverbs, seest thou a man diligent in his business, he will stand before kings, he will not stand before mean men. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians, uh, magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. He's taken into Babylonian captivity in 605 BC. He goes through the entire period. And then when Cyrus the Persian takes over the Babylonian empire in 539, Daniel has faithfully continued and God's preserved them all through those years. And according to 10.1, he receives a revelation in the third year of Cyrus. How much longer he lived beyond that, we're not sure, but uh, no doubt he was getting up into his late 80s, early 90s and faithfully served all during that time. Question. And I know we're on live stream, so any answer you give, I'll try to repeat, okay? How does Daniel serve as an excellent example of what Bill Gothard calls finding a creative alternative? In his Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts, Bill Gothard speaks about when you're given a command that goes against the Bible, 
try finding a creative alternative. How did Daniel and his three friends try to find a creative alternative to the idea of eating the king's meat and drinking the king's wine? What was their creative alternative? Yes, a 10-day test in eating vegetables and grains. And if they were just as healthy and uh, did fine, uh, uh, there shouldn't be a problem. Uh, and so this illustrates the importance of when, when, when we're given a command as Christians that goes against the word of God and our conscience. Uh, with God's help, it's good to look for a creative alternative something that will honor God and also satisfy the authorities. And if we can do that, great. A dear young man who was at Filipino Independent Baptist Church was sharing with us, his name is John, uh, and John has just recently um, retired from the Navy. But he said that when he was in the Navy, they were over in Columbia, and uh, the commanding officer said, let's go out on the town. And John prayed and then told the commanding officer, sir, I'm a Christian. And uh, the uh, commanding officer wanted him to go, but he allowed him to stay outside the bar. And the commanding officer even said to him accommodatingly, would you like some soda? And John replied, water is fine, sir. So when you can find a creative alternative to a situation that would put you in compromise, seek that in a gracious and wise and prayerful way. Now, my next question is, what did Daniel do in chapter 6 when he could not find a creative alternative? When there wasn't some way he could satisfy the demands and at the same time, not compromise his conscience. Remember in Daniel chapter 6, the king signed a decree saying if anybody makes a petition to any god or man for the next 30 days other than to Darius the Mede, he'll be thrown into the den of hungry lions. And uh, what does one do when a creative alternative can't be found? Yes, keep doing what you're supposed to do. Trust God and put yourself in his hands. And that's what Daniel did, and God was faithful. Now, a question that might pop up at this point is, why would it have been wrong for Daniel and his three friends to eat the king's meat and to drink the king's wine? Why would that have been wrong? Okay, which command would that go against? To worship idols. Yeah, back then, um, they would offer wine to like, to like sacrifice. Yes, sir. That, that, a lot of commentators think that's a big part of it. And um, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's the uh, explanation Dr. Coles gives in his uh, study notes. Uh, a lot of these meats and drinks would have been offered to the gods before they would be partaken of by the royal court. And so there was the question of uh, not wanting to uh, in any way support or encourage idolatry. Thank you. Is there maybe another reason, possibly? Of course, sometimes there could be more than one good reason for doing what we do. Yes, ma'am. Maybe they weren't kosher. 
Yes, I think that's another reason they would not have fit the Jewish kosher laws about the blood being drained and things like that. And so that could be another concern. Yes, sir. I was thinking maybe they wanted to concentrate on their studies and not be distracted every day by the latest dames, the latest pleasurable meals, because probably the best food is in the kingdom. That, that's a good point uh, to not be overly indulgent and uh, to stay focused on your studies. Uh, in the Bible, one reason people even fast is so they can focus more uh, on prayer at special seasons. Uh, thank you. Any other reason maybe suggest itself? Uh, it's certainly, whether we fully know all the reasons or not, they certainly saw a problem with it, didn't they? Um, uh, I had thought of one more reason, and in addition to what was shared, uh, in fact, I didn't think of the reason that was just given about the focus, but I like that. Uh, and that is, uh, a lot of those meats could have been unclean meats, according to the Jewish dietary laws. In Leviticus uh, chapter uh, uh, 11 and in Deuteronomy 14 God clearly prescribes certain meats can be eaten certain meats cannot so a lot of meats that they would have probably put on that table would not have been on God's uh, dietary uh, list so I think that that might have been a reason too um, I don't think that this is commending vegetarianism uh, necessarily um, I do I do know that a dear dear man of God Lester Roloff uh, was was pretty big on not eating a lot of meats and eating a lot of vegetables and salad, and uh, and he, he remained in good health. I um, went down to the gym of Pensacola Christian on one occasion, and there Dr. Roloff was up in years pretty much, and he was giving the young, young men a run for their money on the basketball court. But uh, my dear wife remembers very well that she went to a um, educator's conference and retreat uh, when she was on the uh, staff at Pensacola Christian um, and at the, at the preschool. And uh, a lot of churches were there. And uh, I think it was on a Tuesday night, Lester Roloff was the featured speaker. And so they had a special supper that night in Lester Roloff's honor. And they walked into the cafeteria and there was this big, beautiful, delicious looking salad in front of everybody. And the people at the uh, conference said, if this is the salad, just imagine what the main course is gonna be. And then they found out it was the main course. <laughs> they were honoring Lester Roloff, so they had a big salad meal that night. Um, but the Hebrew word for vegetables or pulse comes from a word that means sown things or things that are sown in the ground. And so it may have not included just only vegetables, perhaps different kinds of grains. Um, question, did Daniel adhere to this diet of pulse for the rest of his life? No. Um, let, let's turn to Daniel 10.3 as a case in point. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, sir. Can I read it? Sure. It's from Proverbs chapter 23. Put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite, and be not desirous of this dainty.
Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's good. In the context there, it's talking about somebody who's going to try to woo you into his good graces and favor so he can undercut you and uh, take advantage of you is the context there. And so put a knife to thy throat and don't be, uh, you know, uh, caught up in uh, this apparently uh, uh, VIP treatment because he's setting you up. But yeah, that's a good point. Um, uh, another verse uh, in the book of Daniel itself, uh, thank you, dear brother, is 10.3. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Daniel was seeking God in earnest prayer and fasting for three weeks. And he says that during that time, I had no pleasant bread, that would include food or meat. Uh, and he said that um, he, uh, did not anoint himself with oil and things like that. Not that these things would have been wrong, but he was giving them up during the special time of focus. But the idea is normally he would have eaten that pleasant bread and the beverage and things like that uh, according to the uh, customs of that day. Um, having said that, some preachers like to say, I want to camp here for a while. There is a verse in chapter one, and I'd like to camp here for a while. It's uh, chapter one, verse eight. Chapter one, verse eight. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. They had changed his name but they could not change his nature. Whatever they pleased to call him, he still retained the spirit of an Israelite indeed. He was an uncompromising Hebrew. Now, it's so important that we have convictions and resolutions and follow through on them. I heard Dr. Gary McClenney, he's now with the Lord, pastor for many years of um, Fairview Baptist Church and uh, served as moderator of our Tidewater Pastors Fellowship. A great man with a great sense of humor. And uh, he could even make giving announcements fun. He loved to give announcements. He could make giving announcements fun. He said on one occasion, he led a man to the Lord through the announcements he gave. Uh, but he, he uh, had a good sense of humor and he was speaking at the Tabernacle in one of the evening chapels back in the early 2000s. And uh, Dr. McClenney said that any New Year's resolutions that he would make would be pretty much broken by mid-January. He says so often we make resolutions and mean we, well, we mean well, but we can't follow through very well. Uh, he said, uh, I made a resolution not to make any more resolutions. And he said, I even broke that. And I've made seven resolutions this year. <laughs> but sometimes it's so, so easy that we mean well. There was a French statesman who said, and please bear with me, I don't want to be unkind. There was a French statesman who said, Marriage vows make perjurers out of more people than any other thing. But I think that maybe altar calls top that. Yeah. 
so many people will go to the altar, they'll mean well, and they'll be emotionally stirred, but many times they, um, I remember on one occasion, there was an altar call made about how many people would go on Thursday night visitation. And uh, a large church, most of the people were up there. Uh, but on the visitation night, there was still only, the, fir the first visitation night after that, there was, a, there was maybe double the amount, and then it pretty much got back to what it normally was. Uh, but sometimes altar calls uh, can make so many perjurers. People mean well, but they don't follow through. Solomon said, better is it that thou shouldest not thou, that thou shouldest that would not pay. And, uh, but, oh, we need the ability to follow through on what God puts on our heart. Now, we're living in a very trying world and it's getting harder and harder for conservative Christians. On one of his broadcasts, and I don't say I agree with everything he says, uh, but uh, I don't agree with everything I say. <laughs> but uh, I think he says a lot of good things. And uh, on one of his broadcasts, Mark Levin pointed out, and I don't have the statistics exactly in proportion, but he pointed out something like maybe 25, 30 years ago. In your typical colleges and universities across America, you had 13 liberal humanistic professors for every one conservative. And when I say conservative, I don't necessarily mean Bible-believing conservative. I just mean conservative like politically conservative or, you know, more traditional. Could be Christian, might not be. But he says there were 13 humanistic liberal professors for every one conservative. He says today the ratio is 38 to 1. And many times it's hard for a conservative even to have a forum to voice his view without being shouted down or punished or reprimanded or drowned out. I remember Brother Tommy Willis was preaching a message on 1 Kings 13 at Piedmont Bible College back in the 1980s. And uh, the title of his message was the ability to say no, the ability to say no. Now, in 1 Kings 13, the man of God from Judah did great when he said no to the idolatrous first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam. And he, he, uh, he delivered his message and then didn't stay, wasn't entertained, went back by a different way. But when the prophet of Samaria an older man lied to him and said, but God told me by an angel that you should come and dine with me, a fellow believer. Uh, he was off guard and he went back and he dined with him. And then God gave the prophet of Samaria uh, the, the true word, uh, excuse me, the prophet of Bethel. He gave the prophet of Bethel a true word from God. So it was the prophet lied to him. He wasn't spoken to by an angel. And he said, uh, uh, imagine how awkward he felt bringing him back to his table because he was excited. Here was a man who was taking a stand and all that. He was excited and his sons were all excited. And uh, then he says, you disobeyed God. You shouldn't have gone back. And uh, therefore, you know, on your way back, a lion will eat you. And a lion ate him. 
uh, well, no, not lion didn't eat him. Lion killed him, and he didn't. He didn't kill the man or the donkey. He just stood there, but he killed him. And God was saying, uh, if a prophet of God uh, disobeys my command, uh, I have to punish him. And uh, and so Tommy Willis was talking about the ability to say no. He could say no to the heathen king, but then he couldn't say no when the old prophet lied to him to try to get him back to the house and uh, impress his boys and all of that. And um, Tommy Willis says, we need the ability to say no. We need the ability to say no and make it stick. Daniel said no to a king's diet. Moses said no to a king's dwelling. David said no to a king's defense. <laughs> he couldn't fight in that armor. Naboth said no to a king's deal. The three Hebrew youths said no to a king's decree. Christ said no to a king's diadem. Don't forget the no in nobility. Don't forget that there is a no in nobility. There was, I think he was a history professor. I'm not sure what the university was. I'm inclined to think it was Wake Forest, but I'm not exactly sure. But um, Dr. Donald K. Drake shared this with me at the time he was president of Piedmont. He listened to a program and heard a professor share this testimony. He said that he had a class, I think it was a history class, and he asked the students to write down on a piece of paper, in order of priority, those preferences, those ideals, those convictions that meant so much to them that if need be, they would die for them. And the professor was stunned when all of the papers were turned in perfectly blank. In 1775, Patrick Henry stood in a church in Richmond, Virginia and said, give me liberty or give me death. A few generations later, they would say, give me liberty. But today it seems like what we're saying is, give me, give me. Agur said in Proverbs 30 that the horse leech have two daughters crying, give, give. The old Puritan commentator John Trapp said we have enough to sink us, but not enough to satisfy us. The attitude sort of seems to be today, it's perfectly all right if you have convictions, just so long as you don't believe they're really true. Getting some people to commit to anything is like trying to nail jello to the wall. <laughs> Warren Wearsby said that he knew of a preacher friend who was so discouraged because he had so much trouble getting the men in his church to get involved that he accused the men of his church of changing the words to the great old hymn, take my life and let it be, to take my wife and let me be. <laughs> Satan's ultimate goal is to get us to a place where our convictions turn into merely preferences. If you were 
in front of a firing squad because of your faith in Jesus Christ, would your convictions fade into nothing or would you, by God's grace, stand true to the test? Jesus told the suffering church at Smyrna in Revelation 2.10, fear none of those things which ye shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried and ye shall have tribulation 10 days. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. And we read in chapter 12, 11, that when the devil is cast out of the heavens at the midpoint of the tribulation and confined to earth, it's great news for heaven and they rejoice, but it's not good news for the earth, at least not immediately and directly. Satan is losing ground and ultimately is gonna be defeated, but he's gonna be focusing all of his energies on earth in that last three and a half years. And in that sense, it's not good news for the earth. And so the Bible says, woe unto you because the devil has come down to you having great wrath for he knoweth that he hath but a short time. But in that context, it tells us that God's faithful believers overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto the death, Revelation 12, 11. An early church leader named Tertullian, writing in North Africa around the year AD 200, was trying to make the case, why are you treating your Christian citizens so badly, you political leaders, and persecuting them? If you only knew what they were all about, you would understand that they're your best citizens. And, uh, it's not going to do any good to try to stamp out Christianity by killing Christians. He said, in effect, you cannot kill Christianity by killing Christians because for every Christian you kill, 10 rise up to take his place, inspired by the living testimony of the dying martyr. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In the early days of Roman persecution of the Christian church, there was a dad and his son standing in an arena. And as the hungry lions were let loose and started to come at them, the boy looked up at his dad and said, Father, will it hurt? And with his arm around the boy's shoulder and as if staring into the invisible, and the eternal. The father answered his son and said, maybe for a brief moment, my son, but he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. God's looking for character, not characters. A river becomes crooked by following the course of least resistance. So does a man. <laughs> Daniel, to use James's expression, was not a double-minded man. He purposed in his heart and followed through. It's been said that the reason the lions didn't eat Daniel is because they could find nothing but backbone. <laughs> Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Now notice in verse 21, 
And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. I came across this quote in the Gray and Adams Bible commentary that I really liked. Simple words, Daniel continued unto the first year of King Cyrus. Simple words, but what a volume of faithfulness is unrolled by them. Amid all the intrigues, amid all the envy towards a foreign captive in high office as a king's counselor, amid all the trouble, amid all the trouble incidental to the insanity of the king or the murder of two of his successors, in that whole critical period of his people, Daniel continued through it all by God's grace. The two greatest abilities are availability and dependability. I came across this poem that I think is really good. I'm not sure I would agree with this poem 100%. There might be a few things I would like to revise or tweak a little bit, but on the whole, I think it makes a very good point. It's called The World Needs Men. The world needs men who cannot be bought, whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, who possess opinions and a will, who are larger than their vocations, who do not hesitate to take chances, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who will be as honest in small things as in great things, who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, who will not say they do it because everybody else does it, who are true to their friends through good report and evil report in adversity as well as in prosperity who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, and hard-heartedness are the best qualities for winning success, who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth when it is unpopular, and who can say no with emphasis, although all the rest of the world says yes. Somebody said to the German reformer Martin Luther, the whole world is against thee, Martin. To which Luther replied, that I'm against the whole world. It is interesting that in Revelation 2.13, Jesus commends his faithful martyr in the church of Pergamos, Antipas, for staying true, even though he was slain among them where Satan dwelleth. And the name Antipas means against all. And uh, a man of God will, if necessary, stand with God against all to be true. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. always used to say that you and God make a majority in any community and Daniel certainly uh, is part of that community. Um, before we go into chapter two, do you have any questions or comments about chapter one? Anything you'd like to share or ask? Okay, let's, let's go into chapter two then. Uh, 
chapter 2 is Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's first great prophetic dream. Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's first great prophetic dream concerning the times of the Gentiles. Another title could be, um, or if, we, if you didn't mind the long title, we could say Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's first great prophetic dream, which was the great metallic image concerning the times of the Gentiles, or as J. Vernon McGee calls it, the multi-metallic image. In this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and uh, it greatly troubles him, and he gathers all of his best heads together to see if they can tell him what the dream means. He says, it is gone from me. And some take that to mean he couldn't remember the dream and that's why he wanted him to tell the dream as well as the interpretation. I think Dr. Coles argues well in his prophetic notes that what it means is that the decree has gone from me. You're not gonna change my mind. I'll better believe that you can give me a true interpretation of the dream and not make something up if you can tell me what the dream is in the first place and then give me the interpretation. And they said, no king has ever asked such a thing of wise men to tell him the dream of his head as well as the interpretation. Uh, that's impossible for any human person. Uh, only the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh could answer a question like that. Of course, my thinking goes to the wonderful fact that the word was made flesh and dwelled among us and... Uh, God did what they felt would have been flabbergastingly impossible, that the gods would have cared for people and dwelt with them. Uh, but the, the very word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Solomon prays, will God indeed dwell upon the earth? And uh, oh, what an answer to that question the Christmas story is. And so they can't answer the dream and he, he, they can't tell the dream and he gets, he gets into a, 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 a rage and he demands that they all be executed but Daniel hears about it and goes into the king and says give me time and uh, I will provide the interpretation and then he gathers together his three closest friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and they have a prayer meeting and they ask mercies to the God of heaven uh, that the secret might be revealed and God reveals the secret to Daniel and he praises the God of heaven who changes times and seasons and removes kings and sets them up and gives wisdom to the wise and uh, knowledge to them that know understanding. And he tells the king, it's not in me to give the interpretation, but God will give the king a sure interpretation. And he tells him what the dream was. He said, you saw this shiny, awesome, metallic soldier and he had a head of gold, and he had uh, arms and breasts of silver, and he had uh, thighs of brass, and he had legs of iron, and his feet were part of iron and part of clay. And uh, then there was this great stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands, and it smote the image in its feet in its final form, and uh, it broke it to pieces, and it was carried away like the... Uh, Chaff of the summer threshing floor is carried away with the wind, so no place was found for it. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Amen. And then Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel, you're the head of gold, you're Babylon, but there'll come a kingdom after you, 
that'll be represented by the silver, and then another kingdom that's represented by the brass, and then another kingdom will be represented by the iron. And then the final form of that kingdom will be a strange mixture of potter's clay and iron, and they don't mix well together. And uh, I take that to mean that probably in the revived Roman Empire and their Antichrist, there will be uh, an uncomfortable fit between autocracies and democracies. It's amazing in the world today how popular democracy is and how popular authoritarianism is and, and sometimes trying to mix them, and it's hard. Uh, I kind of think that's maybe what it's referring to. But Daniel gives the interpretation. The king is amazed. He honors Daniel, and Daniel speaks in behalf of his three friends, and they're also given uh, a position in the province of Babylon and uh, blessed and promoted. That's kind of a quick summary of the chapter. And uh, I have this question. When did the times of the Gentiles begin? When did the times of the Gentiles begin? Yes, right around 600 BC. Um, they begin with the first stage of the Babylonian captivity when Daniel was taken captive, uh, right around 605 BC. And uh, the times of the Gentiles refer to a period in world history where four Gentile empires will dominate world history and by and large oppress God's people Israel from the beginning of the Babylonian captivity in 605 BC all the way to the end of the Great Tribulation and the uh, Battle of Armageddon and Christ coming back in the words of John Phillips to bring the times of the Gentiles to a screeching halt with his glorious appearing. And so we're living in the times of the Gentiles now during this church age. Um, uh, but we're between the two main forms of the fourth empire, the ancient form of Rome when Christ came the first time and the revived Roman empire, which will be revived under Antichrist after the rapture of the church. But Jesus said, Jerusalem must be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, Luke 21, 24. And I think what he's referring to is the prophecies of Daniel, that four great Gentile empires would dominate world history and largely oppress Israel from the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. And the, and the Davidic king on the throne would no longer reign after the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, or, or after the Babylonian captivity. Um, the Babylonian captivity would have its first phase in 605, but in its final phase, uh, when the temple was burned and the city was destroyed in 586, uh, Zedekiah was the last king in the line of David ever to reign. Prophecy said that when Messiah came, the line of David would be fallen. It would be in obscurity. And when Jesus was born in the line of David to be the Messiah, Joseph, a humble carpenter, represented the line in Nazareth. Herod, who was not of the line of uh, David and uh, not fully Jewish, but had an Edomite background. Uh, he was the king and a very wicked king. Uh, but Ezekiel gave an amazing prophecy in Ezekiel 21, 25 through 27. I will over, he said, I'll take the crown off of the present prince and I will overturn and overturn and overturn it and give it to him whose right it is. And right now there's no king in the line of David reigning in Israel, but it will be reserved for Messiah when he comes. And 
it's his right to rule. It's his right to reign. And he'll put the times of the Gentiles to a screeching halt. And he'll, he'll make things right. And in his days, the righteous shall flourish. An abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. And the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Even as the waters cover the beds of the sea. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Now, did Daniel in verse 46 accept divine worship? The same worship that Paul and Barnabas so emphatically rejected in Lystra. After he interpreted the dream, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to show his appreciation, but it says, then the king, verse, verse 46, fell upon his face and worshiped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. Was Daniel accepting divine worship from Nebuchadnezzar that belongs only to God? Some readers have struggled with that. What do you think? No. 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 Just knowing we know about Daniel, there has to be a better explanation, right? Um, one commentator suggests that in verse 47, it says, the king answered unto Daniel and said, of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal the secret. And one commentator thinks that Daniel then protested and said, no, don't give me worship that belongs only to God. And then Daniel, then Nebuchadnezzar answers what Daniel said uh, by saying, yes, your God is the true God and he directs the worship where it should be. And I think that's a helpful explanation. I think there's one other interesting possibility though, and that is Jesus says in Revelation 3.9 to the uh, church at Philadelphia, those who are pseudo-Jews of the synagogue of Satan who will persecute you, he says, I will prove that they are liars and someday they will come and fall before your feet and know that I have loved you. And so some people might simply say, just like the Philadelphia Christians will be honored by their enemies and their persecutors by falling at their feet and doing them reverence, but this would be just human reverence, not reverence that belongs to God alone. Perhaps that's the way Nebuchadnezzar was honoring Daniel, honoring him because he was honoring his God, but not truly treating him as God. And um, maybe that's a possible explanation, but. I think I like the one that says that Daniel spoke up and said, no, don't do that. And then we read that Nebuchadnezzar answers him and says, your God is the only one who can reveal dreams and secrets like this. Yes, sir. Yeah, Doc, we're reading through the Bible again this year, and many of us are reading through Genesis. I think to support the explanation for that this was just reverence, Joseph's brothers fell down before him. Yes, sir. Good point. But that wasn't worship. Mm -hmm. Now, they were showing reverence. You know, they were humbling themselves before a monarch. And, and I think that, that you know, we, we do see that, and certainly in different situations, people can understand which is happening. Uh, you know, later in the book, Daniel will fall down in front of an angel and be <laughs> rebuked. And, uh, you know, and it was... 
That's a good point. I think the passage in Revelation 3, 9 and in uh, Genesis 45 show that we can show deep respect right. to somebody and yet make a clear distinction that this person's not God. Um, one thing I wrestle with some pastor is that when he orders sweet oblations to be offered to him too, uh, the king maybe had crossed the line there, but uh, still was maybe trying to honor God in his best way at that stage in his development, uh, um, and ultimately trying to honor the God of Daniel through honoring Daniel, uh, some commentators yeah, think, yeah. But uh, thank you for that, and uh, let me just say this. Next week, we'd like to look at um, how Nebuchadnezzar goes into a rage because his counselors cannot tell him what his dream was. And he says, it's gonna mean you'll be executed. And that reminds me of a joke my daughter Wendy told me some years ago, and I'd like to close with this joke. She said, Dad, what is the Chinese version, communist Chinese version of Ripley's Believe It or Not? And uh, she said, it's Believe It or Else. Yeah. And that's the way the Babylonian monarchy ran. <laughs> and we'll talk more about that next week. Thank you so much for being here, and God bless. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.